uh, before we begin, uh, is your is your camera on? Like, do you have a camera? It's supposed to be. I it, I hate all these different platforms and things. Oh, I see. I gotta. I haven't been zooming for a while, so I forgot you have to reset everything. So now, yeah, there, I, there we sorry. go. Yeah, and it wasn't. I wasn't just trying to hide the fact that I that I only shave about once a week now. That's I'm just being practical. <laughs> Let me uh, move my camera so I look more like I'm looking at you instead of staring off to the side. There we go. There we oh go. my god, you don't understand how happy it makes me to see you. Like this is the first <laughs> time that I've I've talked to you in like over half a year. That's right. That's right. Yeah, well, the pandemic, it limits you partly because of the restrictions and partly because you're so busy doing all the extra stuff you have to do now to cope with the pandemic and to, you know, to find back doors to do things you were doing before the pandemic that it, it, it really limits your social life uh, quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 18 of Small Room. I'm here with... Uh, Mr. Dunn, this is the first question I always ask everyone. Uh, what are you famous for? Well, I am not in fact famous uh, in the full sense of the word. I, I suppose I count as a local celebrity at Gables High School. Oh, that's going to rapidly <laughs> disappear now that I've retired, right? But um, what I've known was known for with my students, I taught there for 16 years. Um, which is a good long time, uh, was my Socratic style of teaching. It's very conversational in the sense of that the teacher is not an authority figure and whatever they say goes. That is, you're in a room of learners, and the teacher is themselves a learner, where people put forward descriptions of the world or theses about, you know, whatever is worth talking about. Um, and you test them, you know, it's open to criticisms and whatever survives the discussion in the room counts as provisionally, you know, the truth or the best judgment we could make on that, you know, for the players at hand. So it's always sort of um, ongoing, right? There's no final end because in principle, another class come in the next day or another group of people and overturn everything you all had just agreed to and thought you'd, you know, demonstrate to your own satisfaction. And beyond that, I'm eccentric because I, I have particular uh, strongly developed tastes. Uh, I really get into, you know, kind of theorizing about things and you know, picturing scenarios and stuff like that. Um, and I play up that a little bit, you know, like uh, like the time I brought in, you know, I, these six foot snake skins that this snake was very conveniently leaving in, 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 in the, the bushes of my house every year. So I thought, well, that's cool. And it, it preserved the whole thing with the, I don't know if you ever saw it, because after a while I got tired of putting it up, I used to tack it up on the, on the cork board, a six foot snake skin um, with the eye scales intact. So you could see the whole freaking snake. Um, you mentioned how your class is an open form. Um, I would know because I was your student. I had two classes with you for one year. Uh, this is just for the audience who doesn't know. Uh, but anyway, um, so did you always, you know, have that open form from when you first began teaching even before Gables or was it just something you sort of learned to pick up as no. you? It's from always. And I'll, I'll go backwards 
two points in my early career. My undergraduate school, I mean, I'm known as being associated with the University of Chicago. That's where I went for grad school. And I got an MA and a PhD there uh, in political science, your elected field of study at this point. Um, but I went to St. John's College, which is an odd little school. It's very much on the tradition of a classic German, what would be called gymnasium in the age of Goethe. Um, it's it, like a high school where you study the classics and, and that sort of thing. That, you know, the, the, the dead white men, the, the Western tradition kind of thing. And it was four years required course. Essentially, you worked your way through Western civilization, starting with Homer. You read the Iliad and the Odyssey. And, and, and then you stop off sort of late 1800s, it was the, when the Germans sort of take over philosophy, so to speak. Um, so, and, and then the way the, the, the primary, and, and these things, they, they, they keep them. St. John's College has two campuses, uh, the Annapolis one where I went and one in Santa Fe. They have what they call the idea of a learning community. 400 max student population. They get more students with an interest in that that they want to take in. They start another campus somewhere else. So they're, they're up to two. At one point they had property in Salinas, California, but I think that the tides of fortune have gone against them and uh, they're not planning on developing that anytime soon. But the two campuses appear to be thriving. So anyway, the cool thing about it was that um, the primary, the, the equivalent of TOK, uh, the theory of knowledge that, that, that you was called the seminar and it happened in the evening, eight to 10 p.m. And most of the classes, but not all of them were in, uh, the, I think it's the third oldest building in, in, in uh, I don't know, but it's, it, 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 it was at one point the Maryland State House. Annapolis is an old town with brick paved streets and that kind of thing, like that whole colonial deal. The school was originally King William School, but round about the American Revolution, that became a really politically incorrect name insofar as we were fighting the monarchy. So they changed it to St. John's College. Um, but, but anyway, so the seminar was set up, you'd, you'd, you'd have um, long, there's like wooden tables, like, like almost like a picnic table, except longer, about twice as long as that. They'd be set up in like a square chairs all around the outside. A typical, um, these were called seminars, would have two, they weren't called professors, although they were, um, tutors at either end. Their job was to guide the conversation rather than to lecture at the students. Um, and, um, and they'd have different styles. Some were, were, were more prone to kind of get into a little bit of a mini lecture and others were more conversational, but it was left to the students to make the discussion happen. They would always start off with what was called an opening question, like a, an open-ended TOK style question to which there's no yes, no kind of answer, but uh, which you can answer in, in several different ways and, you know, develop the argument to support it. Um, and the funny thing, and so anyway, anyone, any one of the active students in a class like that is doing part of the, they're sort of an apprentice teacher just by nature of functioning in that environment. Now, I had a particular experience which shaped me. Uh, in, in my class, there was a, a very smart guy, but he was a dogmatic Skinnerian, as in B.F. Skinner, the determinist, behavioral determinist psychologist, 
which was a very odd background to go to a school where you studied, you know, the, the classics and all that, because so this guy who was very articulate and bright, but really single track mind, um, like we go through the, the Eskos and Sophocles and Homer, and he's always giving a Skinnerian interpretation of everything. And I didn't like that. I mean, that wasn't what I was there for. And it kind of irked me that the tutors let him talk. They didn't, I thought it was part of their job initially to curb him. So they didn't. Uh, and he, he was kind of a big guy, sort of expansive, had a little sense of his own worth. And he'd sit if the two tutors were at either end, I'm trying to get this lined up to the damn camera <laughs> without great success. If they were at either end of the table, he would sit dead in the center on one side, and I took the habit of sitting dead in the center opposite him. And so I took it upon myself to curb him. I mean, I, wouldn't, I wasn't trying to squash him, but okay, we'll hear your idea. And then we're going to move on to other ideas because you're, you know, I didn't say it that way, but I just, I was like the, the, the loyal opposition, the palace guard or something. So I took on a certain responsibility for guiding the discussion away from that single, somewhat dominating, if you let him, point of view, because the, the tutors weren't doing it. So I was going to do it because Damn it, it was my freaking seminar, and I didn't, I didn't go to there to hear all about B.F. Skinner. So that probably made me a much more active, hands-on kind of teacher, but also one with respect for preserving the variety of views in play, right? I don't want to hear a dominant line of view that doesn't book challenge, you know, uh, unless it somehow earns that or wins that. So... When, um, I guess in the final years of my time in Chicago as a graduate student, so I'm working towards my, my doctorate, and if you're a kind of promising student, uh, they'll sometimes tap you to be a teacher in, Chicago has, is famous for having a required core that runs for the first two years. And for instance, in, in um, the social sciences, uh, there are five year long intro courses, one of which called power is, 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 is was taught, for instance, Mearsheimer would teach in, in that program. Uh, mine was called classical social and political thought. And I taught in that for three years. And so I developed my style further, but this time I developed it not as the, the active student who simply took it upon himself to be part of the, the guiding mechanism of the, of the discussion, but is the responsible party. Um, but I, I developed the same kind of things. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a little anecdote if you want to hear it. Um, you start off in that course, you start off with Plato's Republic, which sort of the first book of political science per se, and, and the, the fountain, Alfred North, uh, what, uh, Russell, North White, Alfred North Whitehead called it, you know, all of philosophy, meaning political philosophy, was a footnote to Plato. Um, anyway, it's a difficult book to teach because it seems to teach dogmatic concepts that are distinctly obsolete and out of date. Um, and I knew that, uh, but it's a dialogue. It's really not, it's not a, a presentation of the claimed pure truth from the God's eye point of view. It's a, a group of men discussing justice 
and you see different ideas emerging. Um, so what I figured was I knew there are about six places in book one of Plays of Republic where any thinking modern student would say, wait a minute, that's not wrong. And the two guys answering Plato are just look like a bunch of pushover yes men. If I were there, I would have shown Socrates. I would have, you know, flipped that foolishness on its head. I knew where those points were. That's point one. Point two is I knew what he was really doing. What he was really doing, he was luring into the into traps because he knew they were seeing maybe four points out of the five key points. They were missing something and he knew how to lead them inevitably to the point at which that, that lack blew up in their, their argument. So they look like sophistic tricks, but they're not. So you know you're gonna be attacked. So what I would, the way, instead of having lecture notes, I have what I call the script. There'd be typically a passage, like a paragraph in Plato's Republic that raised an issue. Then I'd ask an opening question, you know, a kind of a, 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 a question you had to think about and argue for about that passage. And then I'd list the likely responses and how I'd respond to those. So basically what I did was late, did that with Socrates, lay traps for headstrong, smart students to charge into and then cold cock them. Show that, ah, but you didn't think about this. And that's why, although it has a certain surface plausibility, there's more going on there. And that's how, that was the technique I used to gain an immediate respect for Plato that he almost certainly wouldn't have with freshmen otherwise, because he just sounds out of date. He's, he's not pro-democratic per se, although it's funny about that, but he's not singing the praises of democracy. He's not singing the praises of a bunch of things that we routinely expect people to sing the praises of. So those two experiences shaped my teaching style. When I came down here, I first started teaching as an adjunct at FIU uh, and discovered that my <laughs> my balls to the wall style of teaching was way too threatening for typical FIU students. Not all of them, but some of them. I remember my first class there, I had this thing at Chicago. Now Chicago's a world-class university. I'd, I'd start off the first day and I'd say, you know, in this room, we're gonna judge things by the standards of, of argumentation. And I am as much subject to the standards as you are. So you will find, if you say something that you haven't thought through, I will criticize it. I'll come straight after it. And you do the same to me. And then I pause for dramatic effect and I say, and I'd say this at the top of my voice, I'm gonna scare my wife now. <laughs> uh, I say, if you think you see a flaw in my argument, nail me to the wall. I'm a big boy, I can take it. So I did this that first, you're teaching at FIU, and there was a, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a girl student in high platforms. She just literally grabbed her stack of books and almost broke her ankles hurrying out of the room. She wanted to get out of the room from this crazy man, right? I said, okay, this is FIU. You got to tone it down a little, tone it down a little, and, but I adapted. And so I realized teaching in high school, um, I'd have to tone it down yet further, right? But but the, and what I liked about teaching at Gables, and particularly in the IB Magnet program and AP and D dual enrollment classes, is that I'm getting the same stream of students. I'm just catching them earlier 
in the process. So I get, yeah, I get what you're saying though. So, um, you mentioned that, um, you know, like how you started teaching, like at FIU, I know you taught earlier, but I'm just saying like when you started teaching here in Florida, like that's where you began. What brought you to the, to the state? Because if I remember correctly, you were born in Maryland, right? Yes. Same county as uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Ooh. Montgomery County, yes. Oh, maybe you had like, a, maybe you partied with him at one point? Uh, he's a lot younger than I am. But he probably, I mean, for sure he went to schools that some of the people I knew went to. I'm, I'm sure there were, there, you know, if there's six degrees connection, we're, 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 we're two, two or three. <laughs> yeah, so what, what did bring you to Florida? Um, I am what's known in in uh, in uh, legal circles as a law wife. You know, it's when you have a couple and one of them's a lawyer, they're usually the big the big earner. So we were in Chicago at the time, where I was teaching and perfectly happy and looking for jobs at the time. You know, permanent jobs because I was an adjunct, which is nice. The students don't know the difference, but you're not getting paid a full wage, and you're you're very much a temporary worker. Um, so she got an offer she couldn't refuse. She's uh, was a franchise lawyer. Burger King at the time was the second largest franchise business in the country after McDonald's. Um, they had a legal department of like 22 people and she got an offer she couldn't refuse. I wasn't wild about it to be honest, but <laughs> you know, she was bringing the money I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> so I had to adapt. So that's what brought us down here initially. And then once again, you say that, you know, you were a little too wild for um, FIU. So then you, you, you kind of had to like find a high school job. Was Gables- well, no, 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 no. I, I taught at FIU for a long time right. as an adjunct where they pay even less than Chicago does. <laughs> 2000 bucks for a course, work that out. If you do seven courses and there are people who are stuck in this role, they're, they're right now they're organizing as a union. Um, if you have seven courses, at 2000 bucks a course, you earn 14000 and you have no social life. So it's not really sustainable. Why do they do that? Well, it's, it's a market thing. All kinds of people want either to get uh, a credit or two of teaching on their resume as they go after you know, professorial jobs in colleges, or you know, people who are like uh, well-educated people in law or business who like to teach the occasional adjunct course, you know, keep their hand in it because they, they have an interest in lifelong learning and all that. Those things together mean that it's a, it's a classic exploitation system, to be honest. Um, the, every time I got hired at FIU, they apologize for, you know, this is all I can pay you, but that, that's the market. You're, you're in a market and the conditions under which the market exists define what, what the pay is going to be. So, Anyway, I did that for a number of years, it, it, but my wife became stricken with an immune system disorder. It, it, its name keeps changing. Her, I forget what the hell it's called now. At one point, the point where I thought the name was best, it was called chronic fatigue immune deficiency syndrome because it explained exactly what's going on. You're tired all the time. You have no reserves. You know, you live life the way you or I would be living it at three or four in the morning when we're pulling a, when we're cramming for an exam or something, right? 
she's in that zone almost permanently. Um, and she's, she gets all kinds of um, fever-like things. I mean, stuff comes and goes. She's like, I used to joke, living with her was like living with the, the series house where every week it's a new disease, but it's never lupus, which by the way is another immune system disorder. Anyway, so that basically incapacitated her. Uh, she couldn't work. She was working the, the year before it came down. And it's often triggered by burnout and that you don't come back from or by a, a viral infection that triggers something that's genetic. It's one of those diseases complicated, has multiple causes, so they still can't quite sort out exactly what causes it. Uh, but the bottom line, she was working 70 hour a week for a full year. Um, and while burnout is expected, when you don't come back from it after two or three months, and then you, you chase around with all these different specialists to nail down what the hell's going on because it's, it's not easily identifiable. So anyway, she, she couldn't work. I mean, for two years, she was more or less in a mental fog. I mean, she's come back way, I mean, she's, she, you would, if you met her, you'd think she was normal. First, firstly, because she's never going to be seen when she can't pull that off. Uh, but she is most of the time. It just she 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 has to rest a lot more. She can't do physically exerting things, so she can't take much much heat for very long. Uh, so that kind of kills outdoor stuff. Uh, bottom line was I had to get a real job. I was teaching as an adjunct for two thousand <laughs> for four thousand dollars a year, um, and that's no good. So high school was a real job. That, so that was the only difference. Now, granted, because high school is much more measured and rubricized and all that, that needed yet a further adjustment, but I'm pretty irrepressible. I learned quickly how to do what I needed to do to meet the requirements of the program and then move back in as much of my own kind of teaching as, as, as the animal would bear. All right, so then that led you to be, spend 16, oh, I assume wonderful years at Gables because, you know, 16 <laughs> years is a lot of years, but uh, yeah. six. 16 wonderful years at Gables, um, but then this year uh, you retired. Now, um, was that voluntary or was it like, you know, the school, the, the school system saying, all right, we kind of have to push you out? Oh, or no, was it they, both? no, they wanted to keep me. Um, ah, by the way, they didn't fill my position. Uh, the socialists lost two people. Mm. In, fact, in my room is now a French teacher. And it, it has to do with our dropping enrollments. It's not that the social studies part did anything wrong. It's just that, you know, enrollment drop, well, look, there's a lot of pressure on immigration. And you know we have a lot of people who are recent immigrants. So you cut off that flow. Plus, there's increasing competition from all those charter schools and all that, which, you know, long run is probably a good thing, but it, it makes it it makes it harder to keep up our enrollment level. So that's where that came from. But no, they, they would have been, they, they, they wanted to make sure I was serious about leaving. The reason I left is very simply, it was not my dream to become a high school teacher. Um, so <laughs> did you ever see, I had up a, that, that thing in the room, it said, live in the dream, plan B. Uh, no, I never saw that. It was on my laptop on the back of it, but uh, I joked about that sometimes. So anyway, you know, I still had a, a, a primary dream. And I said, well, if you keep doing this, this is fine. This is good. You've, 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 you know, you, you, you caught a bad hop, 
and but you made something good of it. And I, and I, lo I love those years I spent teaching uh, and I remember them fondly, but I also knew I wanted a shot at, you know, my real dream and, you know, time's running out. Um, so that if I was going to do it, I had to do it. So I've been kind of chafing at the bit for about five years, looking forward to getting started. Um, and what, what that all boils down to very simply is it has two strands at this point. And remember, I'm 66, so it's like I'm a dark horse as far as one strand goes, which is writing for publication and getting getting published, um, which I I came very close when I tried it the first time, but I was I was doing it stupidly. I was applying only to REACH journals. Journals are just like schools. There's MATCH, REACH, and SAFE, and because I was a little... Uh, uh, I, I was in and out of uh, the doctoral program and I, I kind of a, had a checkered career. And, and so bottom line is by the time I was really bearing down on it, I felt that I, if I was gonna break in, I had to make a big splash, which is, was not a smart strategy, it was stupid, as a matter of fact. Um, so if you're in a similar situation, don't do it like that. Um, anyway, so I had enough signs that I was good enough that if I scaled down my expectations and, and applied to a range of journals, I would get published and kind of build up more gradually. So now I'm going to do it the right way. So now, it, it, obviously, at 66, is probably not going to be the basis for career as a college professor. That, that horse has probably left the stable. Who cares? Um, I'll, I'll do my stuff. I'll, I'll write, get published. And... We'll, we'll just see where that takes me. Or, you know, if it takes off, and if it takes off, how far it takes me. So boom, there's that. Now, in the meantime, almost by, I forget why I got going on the blog, uh, partly I wanted it to, it, it was a way of broadening the, our classes so that they were more than just high school classes, right? Uh, uh, I viewed it as creating a forum for ongoing discussion particularly with the really interested students, even after the, the school year was over and, and they, were, they were on or whatever. And it turns out not to be a very interactive medium, or at least not if you do it at the level I do it. I mean, blogs, as I get it, are interactive if there's a lot of uh, uh, flamey type opinion that people can respond to quickly without thinking about it a lot deal and not much worrying about if they're, you know, because some people say this, some people say that, so I'm one of the people saying this, and, you know, you know, you don't stick out, whereas I put up carefully constructed arguments that I've, you know, <laughs> tested for, you know, weaknesses, whatnot, and people, I, I think that puts people off. People don't want to <clears throat> invest the effort to write a big, long argument countering something like that, so mostly they don't so it, it just failed completely as an interactive medium. And I have to go back to board about that. But I discovered I have a, a talent for it and a liking for it. And I write in that style very comfortably. So it, it also gives me an outlet that the academic writing has to follow a rigorous standards. And some of that's real. A lot of it's real. But a lot of that is overly scholastic. You got to read all the writers on the thing who've spoken, and you got to be aware of what most people think. You got to do a lot of positioning in terms of the audience you're trying to score points with. Um, 
And while that keeps people honest at one level, it also keeps people packed in safe places. So my, one of my early articles was like written in more or less the style of Nietzsche. I mean, like, like really in your face over the top, hey, what you thought was so, think again. And uh, that got a very mixed reaction. Some people really liked it. Some people hated it. Uh, other people were in between. So I realized the blog allows me to speak more off the cuff and, and more radically than I could risk in an academic paper trying to be published, you know, from a position of being an unknown. So it turned out to be really useful. So now I have a double-barreled kind of approach to how I'll spend my retirement years. And, and I like doing the blog in itself, so I'll, I'll keep that up, I think, anyway. Um, and I'll, it'll give me a way of writing that's easier and, and more fluid and, and comes more naturally than the, the kind of grinding kind of thing you have to do for an academic article. I mean, would, based on the way you're describing, I know you spend a lot of time on your arguments either way, but I mean, from what I'm gathering, like the blogs are just simpler to write than, than other things. Yeah, yeah, um, partly because they have to be kind of short. You know, you aim for about 800 words max. Now, sometimes I go to like a thousand or so. If it gets really long, I do it in parts, part one, part two, part three. Um, because people, you know, it's the clickbait thing. Anyone accessing you online has a thousand other options, so you gotta keep it moving along, which is also why you have to have pictures. Like I do pictures with snappy captions, you know, to kind of keep keep consumer interest up, that kind of thing, uh, in the in the eternal fight for eyeballs. Um, so it, I mean, I just now naturally write and think in a very structural way. So most of what I'm going to say, I don't just have thoughts out of the blue. They're connected to structures and things I've thought about and analyzed for a while. So they there there may they may be a new piece or angle but they're part of a broad kind of time-tested way of looking at various things. So uh, that they're not sloppy, but they're little pieces, standalone pieces, whereas an article has to be much longer and it has, you have to show that you've read everybody out there with an important voice on this subject. So, you know, there's a lot more scut work involved. And while some of that scut work is good and useful, uh, it, it just means you get the pace is glacial by comparison. All right. Uh, before we move on, uh, we're going to give a quick little shout out to uh, your blog. Um, it's cogitergodone.wordpress.com. Go uh, cogito. That's it is cogito ergo sum. And I, I don't do Latin, so I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. But it's the Descartes thing. I think, therefore, I am in, in the I original see. Latin he wrote it in. All right. Yes. Ergo sum. Um, and, but there's a more easily remembered name, which is when all is said and done. And I, I think if you Google on that, <coughs> follow a link to WordPress and you'll get there. Um, so you have the, the, the blog. Uh, have you ever thought about just doing like sort of a video version of it? Yeah, but um, couldn't do that while I was teaching at 
at Gables and getting six hours of sleep a night on weekdays. That, that I was stretched too thin then. And what I've learned is that the first six months of retirement is as much work as when you're employed because um, you have to suddenly deal with all these complex government red tapey kind of programs like Medicare, uh, the introductory appetizer to Medicare, Medicare and you, which comes out a fresh version of every year is already 122 pages. And there's Medicare parts A, <coughs> B, D, that's the drug part, uh, and then either a supplement or a vanish thing, and then there's this thing called Irma, if you have to pay more. And then you're doing that along with all these retirement deadlines and complex pension and this, you, got, you get all this stuff in legalese and it all interacts. It's incredibly complicated. It, and you know, it scares the shit out of blue collar workers because my wife, my wife has a JD, I have a PhD, and we struggle figuring out exactly what it means. So a blue collar guy is lost and knows it, right? Um, uh, so I can see that's some of where some of this anger is coming from. The world, the world we live in is becoming increasingly more complex and rational and, and structured in ways that you need an education to deal with. And the people who are getting along just fine without an education, you know, the, 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 the American, the fifties after World War II, just thought that was going to last forever. And it's not, and it didn't, and they're <clears throat> they're terrified is what's what's really going on. But anyway, so I, it, that much time I can't really expand. Right? I can I can it, you know it takes a lot of work, just as with your interview stuff, for me to keep my blog floating because I have to continually do new content for that, and they're always changing the software, and you have to. Feel they just did Google where, where I get my images from. And I'm worried about copyright because that you don't have to worry about copyright, but I do because I'm older and I could be sued uh, at some point if, if, if the thing gets big enough, right? So, and you used to be able to go to you go to Google, you click on images, and then under tools, you click on tools, and there was usage rights. So you click on that, and you could just click on something that said, um, um, approved for non-commercial use. Uh, and so you could just routinely pull out stuff that you knew you, you wouldn't be violating you know, copyright law with. Uh, and like if I was ever gonna submit something like Medium or something like that, which I plan to do in the next phase, I need to be copyright clear on all that kind of stuff. And then about a month ago, they just changed it. And now everything is, there's Creative Commons licenses and there's other licenses and you have to go click on this thing and go off somewhere and read the thing. And typically what it tells you to do, even if it's free, is you have to uh, assign credit and have links to the original picture and the person and the site. I don't know how to do all that stuff. You know, it adds this huge overhead on top of it. So if you're an amateur blogger or blogging on the side, that's, that's deadly. And it just changed. I had a I had something that was working well enough. And, you know, when I got to full retirement, which is mid-November, you know, I could really immerse myself in research and figure out how all that stuff was. Well, that just all got blown away. So, so that's, that's why I'm not making big expansions now. I need to kind of get, I've, 
I've almost got Medicare and Social Security and the, the, the pension plan, all that crap, down into a dull roar where it's not just like, <laughs> I mean, we were getting mail, contradictory mail at times every, every couple of days because all these institutions are doing this under pandemic conditions and they're just feeling their way through it too. It's a really bad time to be doing involved cross-cutting paperwork. That's gonna, that's gonna, you know, uh, be what you depend on for the rest of your, of your life. So, so the big moves have to wait. And it, I'm, I, I'm frankly very pleased with myself for having the discipline not to just dive off the deep end and do what I've been waiting five years to start doing. All right. Um, you know, you mentioned the, the copyright of, you know, images. Um, I use this thing uh, for my thumbnails. You know, my brother is in media. He works at HBO. So he, like he makes, he's used to making a lot of content and he knows the deal yeah. with the copyright. He uses yeah. this thing called story blocks where if you like, if you pay for it monthly, uh, you can get, like stock audio, video, images that you can add to. And as long yep. as you're paying for it, you don't have to give credit and it's like royalty free. Yep. yep. Story blocks. I just bought something like that, which may or may not turn out to be a, a good thing. Well, I'm trying to remember what the hell is that called? It's, it's somewhere I look, it's more for, it's a hundred bucks flat fee lifetime. And it's more for, advertising kind of stuff so there <laughs> once i knew i knew it was going to be disaster i searched on kant <laughs> the the great german enlightened philosopher uh there was nothing about kant there uh there were some rather attractive young women uh, I'm not quite sure what the connection was there. It wasn't just that, but in other words, like anything, it, great for pictures of animals, um, uh, fashion, nature, uh, geography, cities, travel. So the, you can kind of guess the themes, the, the yuppie lifestyle themes that you could pull stuff there from. But for Kant, I got to go to Wikipedia you know, pull out, and those are always cre uh, Creative Commons licenses. I've even donated money to them now, but geez, it, it to learn how to do their thing and how to do it without disrupting the blog, because I use these snappy captions. I'm not going to put all that crap up in the main part that the, the readers don't want to deal with that. So at most, I have it like at the end, like an end notes or something where they can look at it if they want to. They can always reference it and it's there, but it's not like shoving it in their face. So yeah, um, I also have discovered um, something called Delphi Classics I just bought. Um, for a total of $164, everything they've published in the classics. So that means uh, like uh, the complete works of Plato and Aristotle, all the Roman historians you've heard of, all the Roman historians you haven't heard of, uh, the tragedians, the playwrights, all lots and lots and lots of stuff. Each one, I have it both in the original language, either Greek or Latin, as part of the same deal, and the English translation, and in two formats, Kindle and EPUB, because Kindle is always dependent, it, you know, if, if Amazon says, hey, 
you, know, you don't own those. We're, we're going to start charging you a subscription fee on them. They can do that. EPUB is public domain. So it's covering your ass financially. Um, and so it just, I mean, it's going to take me <laughs> a week to download all the stuff. But that, now they also have art stuff. And I'm, I'm going to explore and see if that, because see, essentially their whole shtick, Delphi Classics, and this stuff costs, you get the complete works of anybody for three bucks. And then, you know, like I say, you get the complete works of Aristotle, Plato, that's three bucks, both languages, everything they have that they wrote. Um, if you bought that separately in books, you'd be, you'd be <laughs> shelling out like for three courses worth, worth of stuff. Um, but, okay, what was I getting there with this? Um, Oh, just that since that they can do it so cheap because what they essentially provide is formatting and a standard protocol for, for accessing it and a good look and a good platform, right? Because uh, it's all public domain. Uh, yeah, you have to have been dead for 50 years or something like that for them to do it. So they don't have anybody contemporary. They just can't do that. Um, so I'm hoping that if I get a lot of the art stuff there, that that's public domain, I can just use that. But I'm, so basically I'm at the point where I'm going to start exploring different routes because I can't, I can't pay royalties on this stuff. And there's only so much, um, you know, there's always the possibility of monetizing a blog. Now that's not my primary purpose for doing it and certainly not why I started it. And I've always told myself, look, you know, even if you monetize a blog, you're going to wait like four years because Geez, your 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 primary audience. So that's starting to change. But your primary audience is high school kids. They don't have spare cash for for this kind of stuff. That wouldn't. So you know, you wait four years and then it's more reasonable. Um, so if I ever do monetize it, I'll do it later. And so I kind of told myself, look, you're not going to be one of these sucker hobbyists who gets played by these by these e-companies where they end up, you know, like those games where you end up buying swords and elixirs so you can do better in the game. I mean, come on, <laughs> what, a, what a sucker trap that is, right? So um, I kind of told myself, you're going to minimize spending, particularly regular spending, unless and until you can bring money into, you know, you have to have some kind of a balance sheet approach to that. So I'm hesitant to do a subscription thing uh, for this. Although, you know, if, if it's small enough and I and I know already that it, it, it serves a critical function, it saves me a lot of time, then I might do it. But <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to be cautious. Um, you know what you could, you know it's one of the ways you could promote your blog? I know this sounds crazy, but hear me out. So sure. um, you could run for office as a publicity stunt <laughs> and then just say, hey, by the way, you guys, Check out my blog. You just sort of built a cult following around your candidacy. Yeah, that kind of violates my political principles there. <laughs> which, which come first? Uh, yeah, we many of us suspect that's all Trump really had in mind. And whether he wins or loses next time around, that's going to be a goldmine for him for the rest of his life if he manages to stay out of jail. But um, yeah, there there are clearly people who draw so thin a line between serving the public uh, and serving themselves, if, <laughs> that's 
there's already too much of that in our politics. So no, I'm, I'm not going that way. Even though it, I grant you, not only might it work, it does work. It has worked. Plenty of people have, have shown that it works. Um, but there are other things I, mean, I can do. I mean, I, I really haven't tapped the things I can do. I've been told to kind of promote it through Instagram and stuff like that. And I will, but I hate being spread across all these different platforms because they're all trying to suck you dry. Um, I just started, for a while, I've, my stuff in WordPress, is, it, it gets automatically, I've got it linked, connected, so it automatically goes to LinkedIn and Facebook. Now, LinkedIn, it just goes there, and people act, ex access it from there. So I get, I get really almost as much readership on LinkedIn as they do on the blog itself, because people are hesitant, again, to sign up, because once you sign up, they start barraging with stuff, and... Um, but Facebook, they did it that way for like the first six months I was doing it. And then they realized that too many people were staying outside Facebook. So they shifted the pages so they don't come up immediately. You have to click on a button to get to them. And little things like that make all the difference in the world. So my, it, it went to like zero. So just recently I've been playing with it, again, without getting too investing too much time into it. Because I don't have the time right now to invest in it. I will at some point, but not now. Uh, and you can you can invite people to look at it and da da da, and so it started picking up. But then you get counter invitations, and again, Facebook loves that. If we all spend our time inviting each other on Facebook, they're making shitloads of money selling our eyeballs to all and sundry, and we're getting played. So, but but so. Again, I can't let that get out of hand. I'll have to start answering those things, and, and I'm not going to blow people off. So if, if I'm expecting them to look at my thing, then, I'm, then I feel obliged to look at their thing. Although, I suppose if you get a, uh, at some point, if you catch on enough, you just can't do that anymore. But people will recognize that. But at this small scale, I think the understanding is, well, you know, <laughs> what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So anyway, I'll start doing that. But, but now that means I got to, you know, I got to, check Facebook every day to see if there's stuff there. And, and you get spread across different forms like that. And then you start remembering, like, I know two of my students contacted me about something. And I thought it was in, in my Outlook, and it wasn't. So it's on some other platform. So what? I, I chase after four or five platforms to find where this thing is. And what pisses me off about that is the, plat the people making money off these platforms know that. They're in this constant war with each other to find new ways to suck you into spending all your time on their platform. So yeah, there's that very unpleasant sense of being played. And you know, all this stuff about inequality, most people have that wrong. What's driving it is the tech titans. What's driving it is what's called network effects, where in the online world, if you get there first, and monopolize, you know, establish yourself as the place to go, the way Apple did, the way Google did, and, 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 and Facebook did, then network effects means the more people you have, the more people want to be part of it, so you become a monopoly. So we have all these emergent, we have this new generation of emergent monopolies, which are subtle. They're not crude like U.S. Steel and Rockefeller Oil. They're much subtler, and we do their work for them. That's going to have to be brought under control at some point relatively soon because that's driving inequality. All the money out there is shifting away from everybody who's not got that kind of a thing going 
into there. And so the people, the, the, some, some really vanilla two-bedroom home in, in Silicon Valley this last summer sold for like $2 million. It's now to the point where the people, unless you're one of the, you know, the, the hot young things at a place like Google, you can't afford to live anywhere near that workplace. So it's going to start reversing. So, you know, uh, satellite tech areas will start to be like Phoenix and Austin and Miami even has a, a hat in the ring. But so, uh, because I understand what's going on behind the scenes, I don't want to be played like that. And I'm hesitant, and, but, but I'm feeling, I understand the pull of it because, hey, if you want to use Facebook effectively as a way to disseminate your blog, Facebook has made it deliberately, so you have to get in there and swim around in there. And if you do that with enough people, you're basically working for free for everybody else in the world. Yeah, I mean, with these uh, companies, I, like you said, it's more of a subtle monopoly. Where back in the day, it just straight up used to be one company controlling 90% of the industry. Now it's just three to four, maybe five companies who control 70 or 80% of the industry. Well, it's actually worse than that because they have their different things. Like cloud computing is actually one of the more open ones. So Amazon got there first and still the biggest player, but Microsoft has made a major push there. And Google is trying to get in. Some others are trying to get in. Uh, Google dominates search because, geez, have you ever searched on Bing? I don't know what's wrong with that thing. But And Microsoft is a powerful company with a lot of skilled people. They can't match Google and everybody knows it. So Google owns that. Facebook dominates in the social media thing, the, the friending and da 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 da. Um, so those are two. Uh, Alibaba, a Chinese tech titan, is trying to dominate online payments. And that's a place where the US is behind the rest of the world. Um, and we're, we're ceding valuable territory to. <clears throat> uh, to companies that have very close ties to the, to the Chinese rulership. So it's a little more complicated than that, but yeah, basically it, it will be a, in a certain area, a company can be dominant. And once they've done that, they try to leverage that to, you know, it's like you have your home province and then you try to annex pieces of other things that that gives you access to. Uh, I mean, I know in China, like, it's more monopolistic. For example, there's this one app, have you ever heard of it? It's called WeChat, where it's like, yes. it's like Facebook, Amazon, Google Maps, like a, all these different things where normally you would need, like, d different apps. Like, it's just all combined into one big company. It's owned, it's, um, WeChat is owned by Tencent which was originally online gaming. They were the, the dominant monopoly player in online gaming, partly because the Chinese government cracked down on gambling as <coughs> misdirecting the youth of the nation. They had to find other outlets, and that was one of the ones they, they, they got. <clears throat> I, now, <clears throat> full disclosure, I own some stock in Tencent. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know what they're up to. <laughs> I mean, they're making profits, so I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, again, none of these things would be growing as fast as her if they weren't val 
providing useful services, but as you use their services, you've got to look at the trade-offs involved, right? And at some point, you got to draw a line, because if you don't, they'll just keep milking the situation. But so, so the bottom line is to be even just a consumer these days, you have to be something of a tactician. And you have to know about, you have to really know about the world you live in. You need to know something about economics and about finance and about politics and about all this other stuff, again, that Joe Sixpack doesn't, doesn't know. And that's who I think the Trump support base is. There are people who didn't bother to develop any skills or any knowledge or any interest in those areas. And the world has just moved beyond them. They're scared shitless. And of course, they want, they want to go back to when it was safe for them. They're thinking of the 50s. They're thinking of after World War II, when, and, and without any historical understanding, these people. I mean, after World War II, we were the only industrial power left standing. Everybody else was a heaping pile of rubble. Now, granted, we could have screwed it up, and we didn't. We made out like bandits. We did very well. But we had a dominant position, which was a fluke of being the last man standing from the biggest war the planet had ever had. Those times aren't ever coming back, unless, unless in the aftermath of another war, right? Um, and, and the world has changed so much that to be an effective consumer in your own interest, you have to understand things that, you know, you have to know something about computers and networks, you have all this other stuff. And those people thought they could just check out, you know, just watch sports and, and barbecue and beer. And they have a good, honest job and they're set for life, but that's not reality. I mean, I agree with you that the economy is always changing. Um, for me, one of the, one of the big problems that's going to happen within you know, the next few years is automation where millions of decent paying oh, jobs. Already. like And the pandemic has dramatically accelerated. That other shoe is that's going to drop soon. It hasn't dropped yet. Not all those jobs are coming back. Yeah. It, and it's also because of the trade war. We're, we're, we're dividing into trading blocks. And one of the ways that's going to work is through automation. That's how we pull factories out of China. We don't create new factories here doing what they're doing in China for twice the wage. Plus, the, the wage gap is, is diminishing all the time because China doesn't want to be <coughs> the world's blue-collar workshop. They want the whole enchilada. They want what we've got. But, yeah, but to a degree, yeah, that's going to happen, but it's already happening. It, it will have happened by the time most people figure out it's happening. Um, and I mean, up to a certain point, I, I agree with you that, you know, people should have, like, educate themselves so that they can get a diverse number of jobs. But I feel like what happened with these sort of people was that, you know, after World War Two, once again, the US was the only world sole superpower standing. So there was an economic boom and certain parts of the country were centered around these jobs which meant that situations like, all right, your father worked at the factory, so now you're gonna work at the same factory, yeah. was a very common reality and towns Absolutely. were built around certain jobs. It was valid for 30 or 40 years. Yeah, but then what happened was, you know, as the world started developing and other countries started being competitive, those jobs got taken away. And once they got taken away, 
there wasn't really an education for those people to go to. Now I get it. They can move to, I don't know, Miami or St. Austin, wherever, but I mean, just moving and, you know, paying the tuition and paying for all that stuff isn't really necessarily economically like feasible for a lot of people. So they're they're just kind of stuck. Uh, You make some valid points. I mean, it's hard to make those kinds of moves. Many people aren't willing to do it. The people who are, are known as immigrants. And every economic study about them shows that they're more productive than non-immigrants because they're the people who made the decision, took the risks, survived the risks because a lot of them died doing it. And they come here and they are very determined to work, to work whatever they have to do to, to make it. Uh, there are a number of people in your class who absolutely fit that bill. They are driven. They are they worked much harder than I ever worked in high school. I mean, I was I did my work and it was, you know, kind of a very intellectual kind of guy and philosophical, but I did it in a relaxed sort of way. I didn't spread myself all over the place the way so many of your classmates do, and, and, and you too, to, to a good degree. Um, so there's that. Then there's the thing that we used to have something called social mobility in America, much greater than Europe. That's reversed. We are socially static now. A lot of it is, and again, you can kind of tell it from the political slogans that, that, that are part of what Trump is playing to and playing on. People who have strongly, uh, strong ties to a local, fairly homogeneous community, they're not going to move to find jobs. They want to stay there. They want the jobs to come to them. That's not going to happen. You could fake it for a while. You could have some very protectionist government that would do some stuff and set up factories in places like that. But over time, the country that chose that route would become less and less competitive and would be left behind in the dustbin of history. So you can only do it in the short term. It's a phony solution. But it's always attractive to politicians because voters are looking at today and tomorrow, not 10 years or 40 years down the road. So it's a mixed thing. And I'll tell you something I read, and I've seen it at least twice since then, and it stunned me. You think of the, you know, the whole story about the ghetto and the urban center and all those <clears throat> gang kids and, and hopeless futures and all that. If you compare inner city districts to rural districts, the rate at which people go on to college is higher in the inner city districts than the rural districts. That stunned me. That just stunned me. What that means is the social mobility and the ladder up is there and working in cities full of minorities and immigrants and yada, yada, yada. And it's not working in the rural heartland of these homogeneous communities. And they think it's their right to have history frozen at the point at which they were perfectly satisfied. I mean, and it, it's a delusion. And, it's, and the people who are using that to gain political power seem to me horribly exploitative because it's not, in the long run, it's not doing them any good. I mean, I, I agree with you uh, when you say that, um, you know, you can't really say you'll go back to the 1950s or the 1960s the way it was in terms of job creation yep. for those areas. 
But if, I mean, if you just sort of do nothing and leave those areas strapped in terms of educational opportunities, then it just cre it creates it creates a bigger earl urban and rural divide and it makes it and and we're guilty of that because that always happens whoever's cruising along never does that much politically for the groups that are left behind i mean people love to like give charities stuff but that's you know <laughs> like people love to give charity to africa and china when they were starving peasants um when those places started ramping up their their capabilities so that they're actually able to compete with us suddenly they're they're the horrible and the enemy right it, it, there's a, a certain amount of hypocrisy there i think but the bottom line is yeah they they need to do more than they do and if you look at you know the red states or rural areas there are always bright spots guess what those bright spots are they're typically one of two things, either a college town like Columbus, Ohio. Ohio is a kind of a Rust Belt state. It's the three C's, Columbus, Cincinnati, Cleveland. That's where the best schools are. That's where the larger school, Columbus is the fastest growing city in Ohio because that's where the, the flagship university is. So there's stuff like that there. Also, I've read over and over and over again, and, and I've heard some of the Democrats talk about this. Um, I think I've heard Biden mention it, and I believe um, Warren had mentioned, probably some of the others, that you don't need a four-year college and a degree like mine in political theory to be part of the workforce. What you need um, is, I mean, that's good, but that's not the whole, that doesn't answer the whole problem. You also need community colleges that, that have programs, essentially mathematics and engineering, STEM kind of stuff, tied to local industries. There's something like a million jobs going unfilled because they require a level of math skills and engineering skills, not a full, full major worth of it, but enough of it to be functional and useful. So see, there's a disconnect between, between what's there and who's making use of it. And those people are being told, no, you don't have to do anything. It's bad, corrupt global elites. They're selling your jobs to the Chinese. They're pulling in immigrants to take your jobs from you. So you don't have to do a thing. They're lying. Some of them believe that. Some of them are lying. And it's not, it's, it's telling people in that situation, you've been screwed, right? All this anger stuff, this QAnon kind of craziness. There's a conspiracy of people out there who are better educated than you, who are just trying to screw you down. And that's the real problem. It's not that you got this resource here that you're not using that you need to be using. You're being told not to bother using those resources to go after the enemy. And that's ugly and it's wrong and it's not helping the people it claims to be helping. Uh, are you suggesting that, you know, um, like that, like that they're like people use job training programs? like. That's a thing too, but I, and and like I'm not a, an employment economist, so I'm not the top. I'm not anywhere near an expert on this. I, I read the Economist, which talks about these things a lot, much more than you know a standard other news weekly, right? Um, so I there's different levels. I mean, everybody's not going to be um, a software engineering tech guy working for Google. There's a group 
that's a growing group and that's important, but there are other things that have to happen, you know, at, at less exalted levels. Solvent is, you know, I mean, a, a standard programmer is necessary. They're not the, the big earning hot dog of Silicon Valley. Um, there are, there's all kinds of engineering work. You know, we have a shortage in that. That's all. We often import people with the qualifications that our own people don't have. Why? Because, and it was certainly true of me, um, I found humanities and social studies much more interesting than math and, and, and you know, kind of nitty gritty science. Um, whereas people who are looking for a way up in other, and again, a lot of immigrants fit this category, they're totally about that. Um, they know that's their, that's their one road up in their home countries, and it also works here. Um, so it, it, it's, some of it is, Americans have this sense that we own the world, and if we just stay being what we are, it'll all work out. And that's, that's the sign of a decaying culture, right? Or at least a piece of a, 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 a social group within a culture that's given up that has a sense of entitlement. Hey, they love to throw that word around about, about you know, their, their stereotypical uh, welfare queen in the city. <clears throat> They're doing a version of that themselves. Uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, you mentioned China there and you know how, you know, part of, you know, QAnon, not just QAnon, but sort of uh, po political rhetoric that's been yeah. used within the past few years has been, oh, these elites in China are, taking away your jobs and they're using, you know, economic, like they're using economic warfare and that's one of the effects of their economic warfare? Well, there's two things. The, the attack, the, the Trump constituency, the two enemies are the, the bi-coastal elite, the people who live in New York and San Francisco, the blue-blue states where most of the economic, economic action is happening. Right there, that's one group. That's the domestic enemy. <clears throat> um, they're, according to this way of looking at the world, guilty of of kowtowing to China or selling American jobs to China. You're getting rich at the expense of export offshoring jobs. There, yes, that happens to a degree, but to a degree, it's it's how markets work, and it will play out over time. But uh, I mean, China. China now is getting the same thing from its backside from Vietnam and Indonesia and places like that. So that's, <clears throat> it's part of the developmental process you go through. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, it's, it's, so it's not, it's not just, they, that group sees as enemies, essentially, and this is part of why our politics is so toxic now, both the, the white collar coastal elites and foreigners, including the big economic threat, China, and immigrants who come from countries that aren't threats, and that's precisely why they're leaving them, because there's no future there for them or, or anybody else. So my question to you, you know, relating to China is, you know, COVID has been around for over half a year, you know, it's greatly mm -hmm. affected all our lives in America and across the world. Um, how much of the disaster of COVID do you blame on the Chinese government sort of like downplaying it? And how much do you blame, you know, the incompetency of our government? 
Well, both, obviously. I mean, the Chinese form of government has advantages and disadvantages. Their first impulse was to hush it up. They did that for, I, I forget if it was two weeks or two months. They, they, they literally, um, I forget, they went after the guy who first said there's a problem. Yeah, I think they now killed him. Something like that, uh, in effect, whether they did it directly or not. Um, and then, then they, and, and that's complicated because we don't, their system is, is opaque. It's not clear that was really came from the center, but the way their system works, I and mean, this is how corruption works in a socialist system. It's not necessarily directly bankrolling your thing. It's like, you got to look good to the central powers. And so you rip off land from peasants to build manufacturing on. You do what you have to do to look good to them. And it's, it's not that different from for-profit exploitation of people in a weaker position. It's the same thing, just it manifests differently in two different systems. So I'm not sure if it's clear whether, I think it was the local authorities who suppressed it originally. And, and then at some point, and I don't know if, if the central government was also guilty, I think they were for a bit, but they reversed it eventually, partly just dealing with reality and partly the cat was out of the bag. And, and then they shifted. Uh, and then since then, they've been not only very effective, but effective in a way that a better run country, a country where people have rights, would have trouble dealing with it. So, it, so then it goes on to Europe, which, you know, a couple of places get hit very bad and Europeans start doing the stuff that they need to do. We're the last place it gets to in terms of big continental blocks. And... Trump has been poo-pooing it for obvious reasons of, of political and personal and partisan benefit. He's doing the the free world equivalent of exactly what the Chinese did, uh, ignoring scientific evidence, ignoring what what the the the, the kind of the best practices of the of the you know the people who know about this do. He was playing it for political advantage, and then it. Uh, so we now. It's, it's very complicated, but as far as fatalities and the spread of the infection, we're, we're, we rank on the bottom of the world. We're down there with Brazil, which had a similar kind of government, and India, which just had, you know, uh, a horrific demographic to work with to begin with, plus Modi screwed up in some ways there too. Um, now, that's going on. Now, but one of the counterweights, and it's, of course, it's partly associated with the, 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 the American entrepreneurial spirit and the independence and the refusal to follow, you know, to, to just wait for the government to take care of problems is we have had this huge upkick, again, reported in The Economist and other places, <clears throat> in entrepreneurial activity. A lot of Americans' response to the pandemic was to create new businesses. Um, yes, and a bunch of businesses, particularly face-to-face -face service businesses, are closing down, and some good 25% of them will never open up again. They, they, you know, they, they lost too much when they were vulnerable. But other, in, you know, just looking for new ways that services and products can be supplied using what's now available. So, and that's a very healthy sign. And, you know, some of the really lefty types would crush that. And that's, I mean, always you want some kind of balance and equilibrium. But the bottom line is China screwed up initially and then got their act together. 
And the U.S. screwed up and is continuing to screw up. Now, we haven't, if, if we get rid of Trump, I think we'll come out of this all right. right. Okay. But it's, it was worse than it had to be. Uh, my question to you. Um, you. You mentioned Trump there and, you know, getting rid of him, voting him out of office. Uh, let's say um, he loses. Um, but before, do you think he's going to accept the results or do you think like the, the range is going to be, all right, he leaves office, but then he bitches about it along the way saying it's rigged? Or do you think he would go as far as literally trying to stay in office with military help? I, I think the latter. Uh, well, the, the the he's gonna he's gonna build some kind of media platform. He's gonna make a lot of money out of this. What he's good at is self promotion and branding, and he's done that, and he'll make money out of it. Um, he seems to be a kind of so-so businessman in in general respects, I and mean, he certainly is not, you know, one of the people who's created new industries or anything like that. <clears throat> um, he'll do that. Um, I have a post that addresses this. I forget what its name is right now, but it's about, um, there are several groups that aren't, the National Security Service isn't going to sit around and let him do that. The Pentagon has shown in a number of ways, the Pentagon, the military establishment has this thing. They try not to be directly political and they don't directly challenge political people, but they would have to assent to that and they're not going to. Plus, there's a whole, there's another group of people who will put up with the kind of the constant haranguing and demagoguing stuff he does, but would draw the line at essentially a, <clears throat> a palace coup or something like that. That can't go anywhere. We have enough of a democratic tradition to block it. It wouldn't seem right to the average voter, even those who in other respects were willing to follow along with Trump, but also the key power groups, being the intelligence services and the Pentagon, who would have to, he'd have to have significant backing from there for it to stick. They're not going to do that. Now in Venezuela, <clears throat> that's what happened, right? He, uh, the Maduro had those people in his pocket. He had controls over them and they had money relationships. And so they backed him. Um, but ours wouldn't do that. They're not under his control, and it, it violates their 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 sense of who they are. And he has no leverage over them, really. Yeah. So, you know, the middle. You know, he'll leave office, but then he'll complain about it oh, along yeah. the way. Oh yeah, he was never going to go away for good. Which, <laughs> that you know, I. It's hard for me to evaluate how viable the criminal cases against him are going to be. But a, I figure there's a chance that that happens, but I, I wouldn't hold my breath or count on it either. Uh, I don't know enough about it to, to know, although I've heard, heard and seen enough about it that looks, <clears throat> looks like there's something there. But anyway, uh, he will always have his peak people are not that rational. There are people who have made mistakes in their lives in terms of where they've invested their future, the choices they've made, and they live comfortably enough that they can squeak out with that but be complaining the whole rest of their lives. They're not going away, you know, and a lot of it's 
guys my age who are blue collar workers without a college education, they're not gonna, they can't do a restart. I mean, I can relaunch a dream at my age because I have some of those basic skills and the kind of set of drives and, and, and mental approaches that that seems like a reasonable thing to do. Most of those guys, that's not how they think about it. They think they paid their dues and now they want to sit back and reap the rewards. They're not going to move. I mean, uh, there's always individuals, right? Uh, people aren't machines, but as a group, they've shown a reluctance to adapt. And since we're still a basically very affluent country, and since those, most of those people are not simply going bankrupt, then they'll be able to hang on and they will never, if they won't need to admit that they should have changed and didn't. People, when you've, at my age, when you've basically lived the bulk of your life, it's, it's much harder to reinvent yourself or to say, you know, I kind of made some mistakes that so I need to redirect myself. It's much easier for someone at your age. It's still hard, mind you, but people can do it at your age and into like 30s or so, starting to get <coughs> a little dubious by 40s, I guess. But at a certain age, particularly if you don't have a worldview that thinks in terms of second careers or, or you know, interests beyond the job you had and the, the basic American, you know, beer, burger, and, and baseball or whatever, um, they'll, they'll be around. They will not admit, they won't admit to themselves that they had a chance and blew it, that they didn't maximize their own opportunities. And anyone who tells them, you didn't screw up. It's those bad people over there. That's a very attractive, you know, people like scapegoats. People prefer to blame somebody else for their own screw-ups. That's That happens a lot in all of human life at every age and in every context. And that group of people is not less prone to it than others. Uh, Mr. Dunn, it's funny that you mention, um, you know, Trump and like his inability to go away <laughs> because, yeah. you know, he, he uh, let me just show you the clip because, you know, he said the exact, okay. have you seen this ad before? Uh, no, I, I try not to get into the hating on things. I mean, I have, <laughs> I know what my views are at this point. I watch for significant things, but I, I try to avoid all the nasty back and forth rhetoric, but I'm willing to look at a bit of it every now and then. It's a quick, it's a quick 10 second yeah. ad. Can you see it? Yes, I can. All right. Wait. All right. Uh, sorry. Uh, let me make sure that my audio is on. All right. Um, let me know if you can hear it. Lose to him. Can you hear it? Yeah. All right. If I lose to him, I don't know what I'm going to do. I will never speak to you again. You'll never see me. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. <laughs> well, that was, that's like when Caesar refused the imperial crown three different times. He said, no, I'm not doing it. Shit, don't bring it up again. He said, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, ask me again, ask me again. Yeah, that he's just. I mean, all right, do you think that, you know, this time it's different from 2016 where, you know, 
like there's no way that Trump is going to win, or do you still think he has that like little part in him to like win again? It's different. Look, these things are always there's always an element of fortune. You know, events unconnected to this could happen that could that could skew the race. You know, there's always stuff like that can happen. Uh, he can precipitate crises. That's one of the dangers. Um, he has the power to create a crisis where there isn't one, if if he thinks it would work to his, his benefit. <clears throat> and most presidents we've had, I I wouldn't think capable of that. I mean, they they would have to talk themselves into believing they were doing it for other reasons to do it. But he, he would have no problem with that at all. I I have zero trust in his character. Um, but um, it's different for a couple of different reasons. Um, Hillary was hard to relate to, and she seemed, see, a lot of this is about demonizing your enemy, and it happens on both sides, right? And I'm always aware when I'm giving my analyses of what I see as the problems with the, the group that supports Trump that, you know, well, are you, are you getting too close to the demonizing thing there? Um, because there are always individuals who, who, who fall out of those categories. But um, Hillary bit too much into that stereotype of the career woman. If you want to spin it wrong or spin it in a, in a partisan way, the career woman who let her husband screw around because she wanted power. That's how a lot of those folks view that. I viewed it as, well, look at her kid. Her kid seemed seems actually an unusually balanced and healthy person for uh, a high-profile kid of a celebrity couple. So they held the family together despite his problems, um, and the kid turned out okay. If that had been one of their own champions, they would have seen it that way. Stand by your man. But because it's part of the enemy, they saw it differently. So the Clintons are high flyers. They're both lawyers. They go to the Davos summit. They're doing all this global stuff. That's that's the op. That's the that's the stereotype of the enemy from these people who are, who are so closely tied to a local, fairly homogeneous community who aren't that interested in say world travel or finding out about other cultures because they are immersed in and glorify their own culture. So she was a target for them. And I, I never thought it was fair, but it clearly was the case. Biden is not like that. He fluffs his lines fairly regularly. He's got that grandpa thing going. He's, he's from a blue collar background in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So he doesn't have any of the things that trigger that, that visceral, visceral dislike. Um, so there's that going. There's also the fact that radical outsiders and demagogues um, always sound good in opposition because nothing's ever perfect or even very close to it. But once they've been in office for four years, people get tired of them saying the same old thing, particularly if they've shown themselves to be not really very good at doing the job. So I think Trump fatigue has set in. That's why there's that 40% who's locked into him. 
because he's their champion. He's the one who says they've done nothing wrong. They're the salt of the earth. They're the real Americans, and they've been taken advantage of by the bad people. They're lost, right? Or they'll only very slowly, but also as long as he's a winner, they're with him. If he loses dramatically, I suspect there'll be a certain, you know, like in any defeat or rout, some of the people who are all loyal and I'll never quit, rats deserting a sinking ship, because everybody loves the winner. That's what politics is mostly about, I think. That's a very cynical thing to say, but <clears throat> that's what the last four years and, and some before that has begun to show me or make me think. So they're pretty much stuck there. But there are other people who simply viewed it as, well, look, you know, the, the Wall Street types. Um, I'm a go-go businessman. He seems to want to, he's for people like me, and he'll run the economy well. They probably have Trump fatigue by now. They've begun to see some of the, the baggage that comes along with those views. They've also had a taste of how he handles an economy, how he handles a crisis. They've also begun to face the longer-term consequences, the upfront consequences of creating a trade war in China are always good-looking. It's, it's by round 14 where you begin to say, oh, we've both beaten the crap out of each other, and no one's better off for this that they have second thoughts. Um, plus, uh, you know, old people go for it because he's basically saying the world doesn't have to change. The world was right the way it was when you were in your prime and these people are leading it wrong. Well, when he treated the coronavirus the way he did, it was so blasé about deaths among the old people. Um, not all of them, but that leveled out. He used to have a huge advantage in, in seniors. It, he still has an advantage, but it's much narrowed. Because some of those people are capable of saying, wait a minute. He didn't have my best interests at heart. Yeah, I mean, I a recent poll I saw said that, I mean, it, it's from CNN, like showed him, showed Joe Biden leading, leading with seniors. Like there was only one group that Trump was leading in the poll. And it was with non-college educated white men at over 50. Strongest. Yeah, and that's that's supposed to be a given. But all the other almost all the other groups were Joe Biden was either leading, tied, or dominating. I mean, he, that poll had him at 16% nationally. Yeah. You can't cherry pick the poll that tells you what you want to hear. Um, if you go to 538, who are very careful about that sort of thing, um, they and, and there's another site too. I'm there. I think our that's progress. The, what? Our progress. That's the site. I, I think you're thinking about. No, I was thinking of another. There, there are many out there. It's, it's a thing going. But anyway, in, in for sure, um, uh, 538, they are, they'll have discussions with the latest polls. They'll talk about the different quality of polls. Polls can be uh, fairly objectively judged by quality in terms of how many people are contacted how rigorously they try to get a representative example, what means they use to contact them by. Yeah. Um, right, so, now they, right now they have them at a 13% chance, which on the day of the election, they had Trump at a 30% chance. But I remember at one point around this time, last time, he was at like the same chance, 13. 
percent like in order for him it's been sliding steadily yeah. from up in the 30s it went all through the 20s uh the debate there was a drop off after that the, the presidential debate i mean he was ugly for an hour and a half and people some people could take the tweets in isolation here and there but seeing him basically a bully obviously a bully um it didn't sit as well with some of the very same people who could live with his tweets and his positions you know viewed from uh, from a distance I, real clear politics which the editorial stuff there is really gone far right right now um it's it's not very reliable but if you go to their polls they'll have their their poll of polls, but they'll have all the separate polls. There are a number of websites where they'll show you the different polls and you can see, okay, so go to the um, latest polls. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So you look, so for instance, Rasmussen is generally tilts Republican. If you notice Biden, and this is, this is general election, which is not national, isn't that important because you win state by state in electoral college. But if you notice, Rasmussen, which I recognize as being a Republican-leaning poll, he Biden is plus five. That's his lowest thing, except for the Hill Harris X. Now the Hill is considered very neutral. Um, and let's see, date sample. Okay, sample. They're telling you, they're giving you. If you're, and I'm not a statistician, but yeah. sample size and LV and RV. I've looked at this stuff before, but I forget it because I'm not a statistician, but the larger the pool, and then you look at what those things stand for, you can make judgments on the relative quality of the poll itself. Then you can talk about the general lean of, because you know, there, uh, some of these are regional and different regions are more liberal and more conservative and so on. So there's a whole thing to it. The better, places to look at the polls are either 538 or Real Clear Politics or a couple other sites where they actually go into, they give you some descriptive weighting of the value of one poll versus another. So here, now see, the other thing is they have what they call their RCP, the Real Clear Politics Poll of Polls, which is really an average of all of these. Um, yeah, that was the I, one we were looking at first. Okay, um, yeah. I mean, right here, he has like a nine-point lead. The lowest yeah. one is five points. I mean, I agree with you. The most important thing to do is look at the battleground states. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Trump could still win, but he would have to pull a comeback. And in my opinion, yes. he, does, he doesn't have it in him anymore. It's not 2016. Like, and, you know, people, I think, just sort of have been scarred from 2016 in the sense that, you know, they like everyone is, sort of assumes that, oh, Trump can um, Trump could do what he did last time, where he was like at around that thirteen percent chance in five thirty eight, and he could just pull back all the way to thirty, which thirty percent is real as a heart attack. But <laughs> anyway, um, you know he doesn't have it in him because his strategy has been terrible, and his strategy has been basically Joe Biden's an old demented man, and Joe yep. Biden is a puppet to Bernie Sanders. And honestly, that strategy might have had the opposite effect because when he started using it in March, Joe Biden had a negative approval rating when you looked at the averages, but now he has a positive approval rating. Yep, I mean, a couple of things about that. One is Biden didn't have the perceived negatives that Hillary did. And that's the kind of stuff I, I was talking about. Um, so people were more 
found him more likable or relatable to begin with. So for a while, the partisan stuff works because they're willing to see, well, he's a little too comfy with the, the really socialist-y people. You know, Trump, of course, tried to run against AOC and the squad because that's the group that his people absolutely can't stomach. Uh, but that was never a correct description of, of, of Biden. Um, so, I, and, and Trump just always goes, you know, he always doubles down. I mean, if a thing's not working, he just does it in a more extreme form. And that can wear thin. The novel, in 2016, it was a novelty. Hey, a politician who tells it like it is, who talks straight. But after four years of seeing it over and over, it, it's tiring, not to everybody, but to some. So he lost, I think he lost another four or 5%, you know, compared to, to, to the edge that Hillary had over, over Trump in 2016. Um, now, I think you're right. He seems not, I mean, the coronavirus was the exact worst thing for him. It was a thing that required management and ability to listen and learn from people who have expertise that you don't. He's shown a problem with that all along. From the beginning, even when he looked like he was, you know, for the moment doing okay, where quickly he found he wouldn't read briefing reports. He didn't care what the intelligence service told him, what the military told him. He was, you know, he, he liked to go with his gut. So, but the coronavirus was a national, a national and international worldwide crisis that required expertise to deal with effectively. That was a first time event. We've never had a thing like that where we had the means to deal with it. Like last time we had a thing, well, you know, the Spanish flu and the, the MERS and the SARS-2 stuff hit Asia, not us. Yeah. It hit us. So they had been burned once and they were smarter about it from the beginning. We hadn't been burned yet. And, and democracies are not the smartest people at the beginning. They always assume the easiest path. Once they get burned, they learn from it, but they do not look far ahead. That's just always been true about uh, democracies uh, for as long as they've been around. Anyway, so um, he mishandled that. He obviously mishandled it. So, you know, geez, I was at Walgreens the other day. There was a 30-year-old guy. He was wearing a mask, but he was bitching about the clothes. I said, it's killing my business. And those people have an agenda and we should just open up and get on with things. And I said, well, that's fine. Uh, you know, forget about your grandparents. And, you know, he said something back and whatever. But the, the point is, um, okay, I lost my, got sidetracked there. Um, it, oh, that there were people who wanted to, you know, the far left who want to just close down the economy like that had no consequence. Well, it does. And to some extent, Trump was right that you have to take that into account too. But the fact is, he wasn't good at balancing. He wasn't interested in balancing. He, he simply wanted to appeal to people who thought, hey, America's entrepreneurial and those socialists want to want to close down the economy. So he overplayed that. Um, so what happened is people who were particularly at risk for it, and that means people in the health industry who understood what it was really about and, and knew that he was misinforming the nation, he turned them off. Older people who were directly at risk themselves, not all of them, particularly ones in, in kind of isolated communities who felt, hey, that, that's a problem in the cities, not here, but others 
you know, realized that, hey, I'm going to be smart about this and I'm not going to listen to what he's telling me. So that's another tranche he lost. So that was the perfect thing to kind of bring out his, his inadequacies and his tendency to rely on just rhetoric. He, like he can just talk the problem away. And he's tried that in so many different forms with the coronavirus. It begins to look stupid and silly after a point, right? So, and those people aren't coming back. Now, so, so far I'd say, barring unforeseen events, I think it's pretty unlikely that he wins. But, I, and well, I like 538. They say, yeah, if you, if you keep, if you run scenarios, there's 13 scenarios out of 100 where he could still win. Now, those scenarios are merely statistical. I guess what that means is they take account for, you know, weird things happen. Um, who knows what happens? Uh, if, if, so, if a breakthrough vaccine got, got found, notice three of the companies doing it have just had to close it down because there were problems because they're trying to rush it. If, if a vaccine came through really early, uh, yeah, we still have trouble distributing it. That wouldn't be as easy as he made it sound, but it would be enough to bring people back to him, right? Um, let's say some weird geopolitical event happened, a crisis. Um, I don't think it will happen, but let's say China made serious moves on Taiwan. He could play the, you know, the, the macho man, and that would bring a swell of support. This stuff has happened before. So you can't simply rule out just, just that odds on he's losing now and knows it. And on their other great sides, like Republicans are starting to distance themselves from him. The five or six Republicans most at risk are saying, um, are distancing themselves. Susan Collins says, vote for me for the Senate, whoever you vote for the president. So she's cut that cord. So, and that's a sign when the political insiders are looking like, ooh, this doesn't look good for us. We got to stand clear of this guy. That's a sign. So all the signs are very positive if you think getting rid of Trump is the right thing to do. But that doesn't mean politics and warfare are two things that are never absolute until they're over. Yeah. There's always room for unforeseen events to upset the whole thing. And, and a huge reversal can take place. So you can't rule it out, but it's unlikely. Yeah, uh, what I will say though, is I mean, the damage has already been done to those senators first and foremost, like Susan Collins is uh, losing her race. Uh, and I mean, it's and, and a bunch of other senators are too, because they, you know, connected themselves to Trump for a short-term political benefit, but it's yeah. gonna cost them their political uh, careers. That's point number one. But point number a chunk of them, not don't talk in absolutes. If they're like eight, it's gone from about five people to more like eight or 10 people. Um, so like if seven or eight of them go down, that's a significant thing. It doesn't have to be a clean sweep and it probably won't be because of local factors that you and I probably don't even know about. Agreed. But you. Agreed. But um, I mean, this, like, this crisis, like the damage it's done is so long lasting it's be even beyond current like all the businesses that are closing and all the economic turmoil that you know just uh, to me i used to have that same belief that oh a vaccine if a vaccine comes out like trump will be good or trump will be better off electorally but i mean i've sort of changed my mind on that because um once again coronavirus has done so much long-term damage and it's been 
you know, here for so long that can you really just expect to reverse, you know, years worth of potential damage in three weeks with a vaccine? It's sort of the equivalent of like- In reality, no. Yeah. In the perception of a large swath of voters, I'm sorry to say yes. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes sense. Uh, and it's kind of like eating. Enough, you know, enough that it's shift the ball. Yeah. One or yeah. two other things shift it, it, it could go, it goes hard. But there's, but on a more hopeful note, hopeful for you and me certainly, there's a real possibility that this is humiliating landslide. Oh, that's for sure. More and more likely. And I think that's, that's what the Republican Party needs to get clear of Trump and, and his support base and for it to weaken. Because if they just win, if they lose narrowly, they're going to stick around. They're going to they're gonna claim this, they're going to claim that. You know, they'll, they'll make excuses and hang around and fight for control of the party. There are Republicans. I put up a post which was <clears throat> NatSec for Biden. It was a bunch of like 150 people at, at rather high levels of the national security uh, services um, who served in Republican administrations saying, we're voting for Biden because this guy is that bad, even though we're lifelong Republicans. But um, uh, what was I? There was a point I was trying to make before that, which was simply that. Um, it was about landslides. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's. I don't recall ever seeing that in any election in my life before. It didn't happen with Nixon because that all, as soon as those tapes came out, the Republicans, they just, they just dropped him like a, like a hot potato. Um, so I've never seen before, both at the beginning and the end of Trump's administrations, that many high level people of one party, in this case, it's the Republicans say, we cannot stomach the candidate of our party, and we're voting for the other side. That's really, really unusual. That's landslide level unusual. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but like, once again, like, it's kind of like, you know, like, let's, uh, this is a hypothetical, a hypothetical situation. It's like you eat, like, for months on end, like junk food, and then you just expect to burn off the weight in three weeks. That's not how it works. Like, a problem. <laughs> that like has been around for a long time is going to yes. take a long time. And once again, I will say that on the optics alone, the like a vaccine that's actually working com coming out will be very good for Trump. But at the end of the day, so much damage has been done that I think enough of the electorate will recognize that, oh, it was because of Trump's mishandling of the coronavirus that we're, it, we're in this place. And we were talking about earlier before how, um, you know, there's these two sides to say, all right, everything should be completely open and everything should be completely closed. At the beginning when this all started, I felt that the shutdowns were necessary and they were to figure out this, um, this virus. But the moment we figured it out, you know, mid to late April, if everyone just wore a mask, this virus would be com not completely dis contained, but it, our numbers and our death toll would be significantly lower yeah. than they are. It would be contained at the levels that's contained in the kinds of societies that are able to do that. And they all have a feature in common. South Korea, China, Singapore, <laughs> Vietnam. Are you, are you seeing the commonality there? Yeah. Western 
countries. It's even true in Europe, but it's more true in places like America, Australia, and Brazil, frontier countries. There's this, there's this whole myth, uh, ethic of the independent, I have a right to not wear a mask if I don't choose. I mean, there are little, literally people who say that flat out and mean it and think it's a sensible thing to say. There are far more of those people. Britain has the same, the whole Anglosphere has a lot of that. It's partly why we have, you know, the, the, the largest group of longstanding democratic countries, but it has a downside. Nothing in life is all good. I'm all for, I'm very much a, um, an independent, I think my own thoughts, I don't get sucked into groupthink, but I also have a sense of limits and balance and stuff like that, but not everybody does. Most people, most voters oversimplify. And so they get it down to, oh, it's our rights against big government, therefore you have to resist opening. So there was never any chance in hell that we were going to have uniform compliance. They don't have it in countries that are much more ahead of the game than this, like, like, like uh, France and whatnot. <clears throat> but also we had Trump and his closest associates, like our governor DeSantis, openly undercutting expert advice and urging, oh, it's not that important, it's not that real, and then changing their story as they needed to as they went along. Now, all politicians do that to a degree, but it was more flagrant than usual here. Um, so that, yes, that made it much worse than it had to be. For that, Trump is the most culpable person. And for that alone, he should be voted out of office. But let's get real. That might not be enough. There are scenarios in which that would not be enough. But it probably will be. Things are looking good. Uh, and he keeps shooting himself in the foot. He played, I think, that debate wrong. He came on as an ugly bully. And he went so over the top that even people who wanted to support him, some of them, the more rational ones, had to back off. And, no, that's not right. Um, he's done other stupid things. I mean, the, the super spreader event and, and his, you know, his macho stuff. I mean, with certain people, that scores points. And they're out there and they vote. And there's a lot of them. But all what you do is you peel off layer by layer. And you have to peel off from the center, from the people who are basically balanced and, and rational, and who might have their reasons for being lifelong Republicans and skeptical of, you know, the stupid things the, the far, the farthest out Democrats would, 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 would do. And it takes time to overcome those hesitancies, but they've been peeling weight. I think that's where this 30% to 13% thing has, has come from. <clears throat> Um, well, I, I, mean, think, you were... I think you're basically right, but just don't take it as a given. I agreed. Uh, you talked about that debate. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. When I, I was done watching it, I think that was a horrible day for democracy. It was a an embarrassment and a humiliation for the whole country. Um, and remember, I, I read a lot of I don't just read U.S. news. <laughs> I, I read my my standard weekly is London based, uh, and they never quite say it, but you kind of say, "Oh, those colonials," you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, 
and I've, I've, I've read another, I mean, we look foolish to the world at large. We've massively damaged our national leader, our international credibility and our leadership of the free world. I think we can recapture it, although it's going to be a little more, you know, a little more qualified than it had been before because we've shown that we can wobble way out of orbit, that we are not a reliable partner. We might be in the current mood, but no one else will ever forget the episode where we showed ourselves to be a completely unreliable international partner. That, that's permanent. And somebody said something about the debate, which um, I thought was extra pointing it. Trump came off as extra Trumpian. I don't know if that makes any sense, but like normally, you know, he like, he like interrupts and interjects, but he did it way more. And it was about the most petty things like, oh, Biden didn't go to an Ivy League school and he ranked bottom of his class and his son got, uh, and, and his son did cocaine. Just like stuff that literally has nothing to do with policy. And you're just taking a jab at somebody for like non issues. It made him look petty and mean-spirited. When, when you look at him in his element at the rallies, he'll say his outrageous stuff, and then he'll joke, and he'll laugh, and he'll be, he'll be, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And there was none of that there. He was, what, I, and I only watched the first half of it, because I, you know, I think, because at some point I said, okay, I've seen everything that's going to happen has played out, and this makes me sick. Um, but um, he was pure, unmitigated bully, pure, unmitigated. I, I mean, he was nothing but abusive, corrosive, mean-spirited. There wasn't a generous bone in his body. He, it was ugly. It, it was, I think it was the man himself, right? But so, and I think that hurt him. If he'd been able to turn it into rally mode, where he'd he'd say something outrageous and then he'd be genial and make a joke and act like he didn't really mean it, that would have worked better. What's always worked for him is saying ugly stuff that appeals to his ugliest supporters, who nobody else wants as supporters, and then making out as though he didn't really say it and he's a regular guy. And that that cheap trick has been surprisingly astonishingly successful and that should make you worry about the future of democracy in general <clears throat> but he didn't use that trick here he was pure full-on ugly and mean-spirited and that doesn't play as well so i think he did a wonderful job of shooting himself in the foot and then when uh when biden said okay we're gonna after your super spreader event we're gonna have partitions and stuff and he said well or no, they were going to do it virtually. He said, well, I'm not going to let them do that to me. Uh, I think that was another stupid move because the only impression he leaves is that one. But I think he also probably sensed that he wasn't going to do better the next time around. You know what I think it is, though? Um, I mean, because here's what happens. Like, let's say the debate would have happened and it would have been through Zoom. Um, yeah. You know, every single time he interrupted, the, the person could have just muted him through the Zoom app. That's the other thing. And, and I think they that, wouldn't say that out loud, yeah. but they'd exercise it. Yeah. Yeah. It was and, obvious to anyone who was counting that he violated the rules far more often than Biden. Biden, 
Biden struck back a couple of times because if he didn't, he'd look like a <laughs> like a <laughs> a doormat. But it was clearly Trump who would not follow the rules, which if you're if if you've never liked him, you say that's his whole personality. If you've liked him, I think seeing it in that intense environment, um, for some people with a, a a little bit of rationality and, and moderation left, that was too much for them. That was too strong a dose of the straight stuff. So yeah, he understood that he wouldn't be able to do that in a virtual environment. Whereas he doesn't want to play unless he has a, an advantage, uh, whether it's an advantage in the rules themselves or in his unwillingness to be bound by the rules, whereas the other guy will, which gives him an advantage. It's the trick he played on all the Republican you know, rivals back in 2016. They weren't willing to stoop as low as he was because they figured, well, the, the voters will see through that, but they figured wrong. And that should scare us both. Yeah. That's still there. Yeah, but you know what it is? I mean, I... I think the more I think Trump genuinely believes the more he goes out there and the more he speaks, like the better he'll do in the long term. But I think like it wasn't because he realized that oh if I if I speak more people will like me less, so I'm just gonna duck out. I think it was really because he wanted to you know he wanted to interrupt or he wanted to interject in the second debate, but the moderators would obviously cut him off yeah. through whatever software they would end up uh, using. But um, as you know, Trump 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 contracted coronavirus, yeah. and you know he's been like everything up to this point. He's been super reckless, leaving the hospital when the doctor said not to. And I don't know if you heard this story. It's the funniest story ever. I was thinking about covering it, but I think it was like too low brow. But yeah. like one of his insiders said, Trump was planning a stunt where once he came out of the hospital, he would like appear weak and he like about to faint and then he would rip open his shirt and there'd be a Superman logo. Well, he did the closest thing to that that wasn't absolutely clownish, which was when he ripped that mask off when he addressed the press from the balcony. It's, but it has the same kind of macho appeal to the same segment of his support. But I, I think the other would have been too clownish. But yeah, he likes to do that sort of thing. Have you ever heard the, the term hubris? Yes. Okay. He's got hubris and it's bringing him down. He And, and think about it. I, I, yeah, like, for instance, um, I, did you watch the, uh, the Heat Lakers finals? No, I was doing homework. Okay, don't, don't worry about, about it. Don't I, I don't generally get sucked into sports on a regular basis, but I, I followed that series. Um, in the final game in particular, there was a point where it was just magic, and every shot uh, LeBron took went in. And in, in, in sports, it's called being in the zone. And in playing soccer, I've had my moments of, uh, of it, and I know what it feels like where – Normally, you try something which has a 74% chance of success, and sometimes you get lucky, it happens three times in a row, sometimes you get unlucky, and it fails three times in a row, right? And sometimes you're in the zone, and it's like whatever you do keeps working. You, you don't know what it is, but you love it, and you just do more. You just, let's, keep, let's roll with this while we got it going. 
And hubris is kind of like that, except it's when you're, you're dealing with real power. And it's, it's hard for people who are racking up improbable success after improbable success, which isn't exactly a description of Trump's entry into politics, to not think that you're golden. You were right when everybody else was wrong and you were right again and again and again. So more of the same will win out in the end. So it's, you can see how it would be a hard delusion to resist if you were in the zone. You just assume the zone goes on forever because it has so far and everybody said it couldn't. So I, I, th I think you're right. He doesn't think he needs to do, he thinks all he needs to do is double down. Um, part of him thinks that. Most of his advisors are trying to tell him to change up, you know, not to throw it all away, but to do this, do that. And he's routinely ignored the advice of his advisors and counselors. He, he does it all the time. And he gets away with it. So, you know, he's a spoiled frat boy. And he acts like one. Um, you were talking about basketball. Um, you know, I didn't watch the final game because I was too busy. But, you know, I heard a lot of things about how it was, um, it was, it was very intense. Um, and, you know, it was the Heat versus the Lakers. Um, you know, this is going to sound like contradictory. Like, on one hand, I was kind of like, I was hoping that the Heat would win just because it's like our hometown. Yeah. But then on the other hand, Kobe died this year. And, you know, Kobe was a big inspiration to me in terms of, you know, how much work he put in and how much he dedicated to his sport of basketball. There was one game where Kobe made 80 points by himself. Yeah. Uh, and, anyway, and, you know, since Kobe tragically passed away and he was on the Lakers for all of his NBA yep. career, like, it, it was kind of good that the Lakers won it for Kobe. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I get that. Uh those I if 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 I were a fan, would I allow it to influence me? I mean, it's a it's a feel-good kind of thing. I just what I like about and it showed up first in the, 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 the Eastern Conference finals with the Celtics. The Celtics there, I think their five stars were all like first round draft picks or top ten picks or something like that. Whereas the Heat are retreads. A lot of them are people who are passed over or downgraded or something like that, who had to claw their way up out of their sheer tenacity. They're the they're the off the streets blue collar team in that sense. Um, the people who didn't who weren't the favored sons of fortune all along and who got there out of persistence. And that always, I always like the underdog and the outsider. And so <clears throat> I, I would have had a hard time rooting against the Heat, even if they were the other team. Um, so there's that too. But there's always stuff like that on these things. Yeah. I mean, but like, okay, with the Heat though, like, you know, a part of me, a part of the reason why I didn't want the Lakers to win was because I think LeBron killed us. And I don't know if it was directly him, but there was this time, you know, from 2010 to 2014, 
where the Heat were killing it every single year. I think in those four years, three three or all four of those years, they made it to the NBA finals and the championships. But once LeBron James left, you know, everything just went downhill. And he's the opposite of what you just described as Kobe Bryant, who invests himself in a team and spends his career there, whereas whereas, uh, LeBron clearly shops around. He's a superstar and knows that he shops around for the team that can best support him in his pursuit of championships. But to show the hypocrite in me, I'm intrigued by the rumors that Giannis Antetokounmpo um, might end up with the Heat, that he saw basically the Heat is a champion team lacking only a dominant big man. Uh, Bam is, is, is a, he's really more a power forward size than a center size. Um, but anyway, he, he, he's very good, but, but, and, and that the Bucks didn't, didn't have the energy to get past the heat. Um, also they share the same agent apparently, uh, and they're both free agents after their next year. So, cause when, 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 when the Heat was having its bad patches with the Lakers, it was really, it was the dominance of, of the, their tall guys in the center that opened up the game for their perimeter shooters. And you kind of saw that's the one piece that, that the Heat could use to, to finish the game. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, while criticizing LeBron for playing around for championships and Hoping that um, that Giannis does the same thing is a little hypocritical. But anyway, sports is about being hypocritical, right? I mean, it's about <clears throat> choosing sides just because you're connected to them, right? It's it's uh, it's I, I often think of it, it's a displacement for old style nationalism, right? <clears throat> Let our team beat their team the glory of us. Uh, Mr. Dunn, um, I don't know if um, you remember. Just give me a second to um, uh, pull it up here. Uh, all right. Uh, all right. I have it. I have it pulled up. So I'm just going to like show it to you right now. Um, you guys wait. I promise this is worth it. Um, I don't know if I don't know if you know what I'm, ab- I'm about to pull up. I don't either. All right. Do you remember? Uh, okay. Let's see. That's me. There's uh, my water glass. Oh, okay. Uh, that's uh, okay. Yeah, I remember. I do that from time to time. Sure. <laughs> All right. And then there's another video right here. I made it. I made a second one. Um, so watching the video, my thought is really, if you have a pot belly, you shouldn't do that on video, but, <laughs> uh, I, I have it here. Let's watch this one here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I remember I just saw some of these at the time, but I didn't like those. That's what I'm dancing to is some kind of cool Afrobeat music that I'm trying to kind of 
you know, enlarge all your minds to get into. And then they take out my music and put in somebody else's shitty music. Because, <laughs> yeah. right. I mean, somebody else, you know, it was Maria. Um, she, you know, put um, a Which song Maria? in there. Um, Mar not Car uh, Maria. Um, uh, last name is with, I don't know her last na name off okay. the top of my head. Um, but Maria put the song there and um, uh, I just took that idea and, you know, I took it a step further uh, because I thought like the mu you dancing fit with the Fortnite better. Um, where were you when like you first found out about it? Oh, it was, it was in class. Someone told me, well, they came and showed me, of course, right on their, on their smartphones. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't worry about stuff like that. It's all in good fun. And, you know, I might not like, uh, per se, how I looked or, or the soundtrack, whatever, but that the, I'm just joking around. You know, it's, I, I, I take education very seriously, as, as you know, but that doesn't mean you have to be deadly serious like you're at a funeral all the time, right? So it's, it's fine to be, uh, you know, uh, to joke around and, and do stuff like that. And, and because it, it helps, it's hard to, to focus intensely on really complicated and difficult things. So yeah, why, why not do it as part of life and do all the normal things you do to, to make life move along more smoothly and, and joyfully? I, I just want you to know I did it out of love, no malintent, uh, but I had no- I, I understood that. Uh, but I had no idea that it was gonna, um, you know, go as far out as it did. I even- How far out did it go? <laughs> Uh, Miss Lancy and Miss Cosgrove saw it. <laughs> oh yes, they they brought it to my attention too, as 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 they would. Uh, uh, yes, they'd enjoy teasing me about that. But it was te it was affectionate teasing, and they also know you know essentially it. They could tell it was done in 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 a friendly spirit. So what it means is you've got rapport with your students, uh, but you sure look damn silly. <laughs> and point taken. Uh, no no disagreement there. I one time, and um, there's a place I go to, which uh, it, it's uh, it's called Sage. It's down here on Dixie near in Pinecrest, and it's run by parents of two former Gables grads. The bias is uh, uh, Taylor and, and Gabby, but um, they often have, as they're kind of people who work with them, you know, as waiters or whatnot. Uh, there've been other people from Gables. There was a guy named Felipe, and one year I he was a uh, he and two or three guys who were on the soccer team. There were like six of us, and it was like lunch. And so class had left, but I had my Afrobeat on, and I was kind of doing that. And we formed like one of those men circles, and we were in the circle, sort of dancing man dance kind of stuff. You know, it was, it was but stuff like that. It's it's fun. It doesn't, it's uh, you don't have to look, if, if you're for real and, and serious and legit, you don't have to walk around like a textbook image of serious and legit all the time, right? If you have to do that, you're probably covering some, some, something is missing inside. Um, you know, uh, last question, um, what okay. would you like to be known for? You know, because I did ask at the first, like, what are you famous for? And like that question has to do with like, well, how do you, how do, uh, how do you think others perceive you and like what they know you for? But like, this question's more like, 
what would you like others to know you for? Well, it has to do with my primary passion, which is thinking, teaching, and writing. And I look at that in sort of stages or branches. And one part I think I've succeeded at, and that that's in bag, so to speak, is a number of people, both at Gables, at Chicago, at FIU, will remember me as as one of their favorite teachers and, and, and you know, favorite teacher. Uh, the point being a teacher who got them to think for themselves, that pushed them to thinking for themselves in ways they had never thought for themselves before, i.e. not just someone who loaded them, you know, open the skull and preload some pre-programmed information, but who transferred a skill and sparked them to discover their own talents and potentials. Because that's, that's the core of what the highest form of teaching is for me. And I've benefited from it on the receiving end, and I like to pay it on. And I enjoy that, and I'm good at it, and it's fun. So it works. The blog is obviously an extension of that. It's not interactive, although once I can go at it more full time, I might be able to find ways to make it interactive, like, for instance, to have a, some kind of Zoom or virtual reality discussion where where people are talking to each other and where people can jump in and ask questions or whatever. I don't know, you know, whatever is possible, I'll check it out. If it works, it works. I mean, I still that model of the seminar, you know, the kind of self-actual, a group who self-actualized. And I had all through college and graduate school, I was parts of reading groups that did that sort of thing, a group of five or six people or eight or 10 who would get together and go over a key text we're working on in the classroom in a smaller, more intense group. And, you know, just, we did it for ourselves. Like, I like that kind of grass, grassroots scholarship, really. Um, so the blog, I kind of like writing. I'm getting a little bit into the broadcasting my ideas side of it, but I still prefer the dialogic part when that can happen. And then, um, you know, just writing for publication. I'm, you know, I can't count on that, because of my age and whatnot. Uh, if, if I felt the way I felt now and I was 30, I figure this, this is going to fly. I'm going places with this. It's obviously less likely at this point, but the point is I have some time. It's a thing I want to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to enjoy doing it. Um, and I'll see, I'll see how far it takes me. And it, you know, if it starts to really click, like the blog, when I first started it, I thought it would be a very occasional thing, but it clicked. It really clicked. I had no idea. I've now, I've posted like 250 posts, and those are like, you know, large-ish posts, 800 words generally. You know, they, they, they have some substance to them. Um, I had no idea it would snowball into that when I started it, but it clicked. So this writing for publication thing I'll work on that. I'll clear. So I'll at least have two tracks going, right? Plus, you know, and I do a lot of like nature-y kind of hiking around kind of stuff. I got other things I do as well, but those are what I think of as my primary contribution or, or career, post-career tracks, if you know what I mean, second career things. Um, and it'll be partly a matter of whatever takes off. I mean, maybe they'll both go alongside each other. Maybe one will fly and the other will fade away, and it could be either one. You know, you, you kind of inch forward experimentally, 
see what's working and press on on the, on, the, on the path that works best for you, which isn't a bad ball for you to take as you approach college. All right. Uh, it's been great to have you on, Mr. Dunn, but as you know, uh, all great things must end. You've been a <laughs> great guest for uh, Small Room Episode 18. Well, thank you very much, Alex. And I am very impressed with the, the way you've done this. I'm, you know, I watch from time to time uh, things like uh, uh, Adam Poor and Company and, and, and well-done talk shows which have content but are also kind of conversational and lively. And I suspect you've watched and learned from them because you, you, there's real technique to what you do. I'm, I'm impressed you're doing a good job with this. Jesus, it would have been a great cast project if you rolled it out in time. <laughs> but, and it, it has life of its own. I mean, this is something you could obviously carry on into college. Uh, uh, hey, talk a, a sneaky way to get FaceTime with professors, right? Do, do, do have your, your interview thing and it's working for both of you, which is, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. A lot of the world works that way, even even the good parts of it. So, yes, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate it, and I enjoyed it very much. Uh, it's been great catching up with you. Uh, yeah. Stay safe. You too. For those of you who are new to Small Room Report, if you found this interview entertaining or informative, please give me a follow on the platform you use to listen. All the platforms of my guest or guests is in the description. Have a great day.